This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. All eyes have been on Washington with a key hurdle cleared towards the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's begin, though, with another story from the nation's capital. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado has raised concerns that the White House has put together a secret marijuana committee designed to mislead the public about the drug. Bennett's concerns stem from a BuzzFeed report that hinted at the committee's existence. And last week, the White House confirmed that, yes, it is running a committee made up of 14 federal agencies to study marijuana, but insists its work is unbiased and not politically motivated. BuzzFeed reporter Dominic Holden is here to share his reporting. Hi, Dominic. Ryan, thank you for having me. You found that this committee is largely focused on propagating negative attitudes towards marijuana. What did you find that led you to report that? So we obtained a few memos that were provided to members of the committee, 14 federal agencies and the Drug Enforcement Administration, a fairly sweeping effort. And they complained at one of the meetings that they held in July that there was too many positive attitudes toward marijuana and that if they were to turn the tide, they needed to provide a counter narrative. They were effectively trying to combat the public support for marijuana, and they wanted to identify both issues related to state initiatives as well as have all of these federal agencies and the DEA submit data showing negative trends around marijuana, information about how marijuana poses a health threat and a national security threat. One of the ironies here is that they were saying that the narrative was one-sided, but they weren't necessarily looking for objective information in this request. They only asked for negative data in return. This was on paper. You saw these documents. We'll point to your reporting at CPR.org. So confirmation of the committee's existence came from a letter to Senator Bennett from the director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Uh, And it maintains that the committee's work is unbiased. Did you find anything that, in, Yeah, did you find anything in your reporting that supports that claim? So this is uh, the Office of National Drug Control Policy. It is often referred to as the drug czar's office. And by its charter, it opposes legalization. Um, Under the Bush administration, they had opposed legalization measures or decriminalization measures. Um, And here we have the acting director, James Carroll, saying that they are going to be purely objective um, and that they are going to get, quote, all perspectives, positive and negative. Um, it was a bit interesting, though. Carroll said that he did not attend the meeting. And so it's not perfectly clear if he's trying to distance himself from what they're doing or if he uh, is aware of it or not terribly aware of what's going on. One of the fundamental questions that we have here is whether there is an interest from the top of the federal government, the West Wing, Trump himself, to 
counter positive attitudes toward marijuana, mm-hmm. or if there is a fairly entrenched uh, effort within the federal government to combat these attitudes. And this could be at a lower staffer level, and they're trying to get the top people to come along. We're not absolutely certain, but we do have James Carroll saying this is a totally objective enterprise at this point, confirming that this is, in fact, a committee. Now, we used the term secret uh, earlier, and I'll note that there's some dispute over whether this committee was actually being kept secret. The White House is saying, no, it's not secret. It just was never publicly announced. Is that unusual for committees to go unannounced? It is common enough for the federal government and the White House to consider a wide range of policy issues. What's different here, in addition to the fact that it is not announced and obviously a matter of public interest, is that the stance of the federal government is so opposed to Americans at large who are increasingly supportive of legalizing marijuana. You've got eight states with marijuana legalization laws on the books. So if there is a committee that is doing work at odds with the direction of the American people, that is unusual. And the fact that it's not announced is remarkable and does make it feel quite secretive. Especially given that this covers so many federal agencies, it's not necessarily a small enterprise. Okay, back to this idea of where the the sort of directive and the view of marijuana is coming from. Is it the highest echelons, i.e. President Trump? Is it perhaps his attorney general who has compared marijuana to heroin? Or is it, as you suggest, uh, lower level bureaucrats, for lack of a better term? You, you just don't know at this point. We don't know, and we've seen the executive branch sort of all across the map. Trump has said that he supports the right of states like Colorado and others with legalization laws to continue with their plans. He told Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado that they had reached some sort of agreement to not interfere there. At the same time, The White House has said that we should expect more marijuana enforcement. U.S. Attorney Bob Troyer of Colorado has said that he would uh, possibly bring charges against a business even though it is licensed by the state. So we're really seeing a number of mixed messages and it's hard to read what's going on. One of the things to keep in mind, though, is that many people in these states believe that while there could be risks with marijuana legalization, there are benefits too. And it's not clear that the federal government is taking into account that some of these marijuana uh, businesses displace illegal crime rings or gangs. They create tax revenue that goes to public health. They card people to make sure they're 21 before they buy marijuana. So there are people across the country who see the benefits of legalization. And it's not clear that the federal government is considering both sides of this issue the same way. You mentioned Colorado's U.S. attorney, Bob Troyer, and he did indeed announce that he'll take a a look at commercial growers and vendors who may be contributing to the marijuana black market, uh, even though they are licensed under state law. He says there are too many loopholes in state law. What, What do you make of the timing? 
I find it a little unusual, honestly, the premise of his argument. If the issue is that too much marijuana is getting out of the legal system into the illegal one, abolishing the regulatory legal schemes only seems to exacerbate the problem. It is possible that he could see that Colorado, now with legalization in place for many years, has problems with its regulatory scheme and he does want to crack down. Um, It seems, though, that he might be able to achieve his ends if he is sincere about them by working with people in the state to make sure that those problems don't continue. Let's step back here. You've got... The federal government's uh, forming this committee to look at, at marijuana. And what what might their end goal be? Do you have any sense from the creation of this committee or any of its uh, proceedings what what they want to achieve? Given the fact that they've asked for data with negative trends and they said they wanted to possibly present this information to the White House, uh, to the president himself, it could be that they are in the early stages of an effort to run essentially a campaign against legalization to make people concerned about the harms of marijuana. They said that they want the agencies to portray it and show how it is a national threat, a security threat, a health threat. And they could use that to try to stymie efforts to to legalize marijuana in other states. When I followed up uh, with the White House and asked if they were looking for any positive information about legalization, who had started it, uh, this committee, uh, what is being done now and what's coming up, uh, they didn't answer those questions. So it's very hard to assess what their next step's going to be. Dominic, thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Ryan, thank you for having me. Dominic Holden of BuzzFeed. His report that the Trump administration is running a marijuana committee prompted Colorado Senator Michael Bennett to raise concerns it's misleading people about marijuana. Bennett said in a statement this week that he intends to hold the committee to its commitment to present objective and scientific information about cannabis. Here's a pretty picture. You're in your 30s or 40s, you're worth a million dollars, and you've just retired. Perhaps that sounds like a dream or like winning the lottery. Not so. People are doing this right now because of their own financial decision-making. They're sometimes called radical savers, and they're part of a larger movement called FIRE, Financial Independence slash Retire Early. The concept is pretty straightforward. Save as much as you can, as quickly as you can. Now, what's radical about that? Well, they're putting around 70% of what they make into retirement each year. Carl Jensen of Longmont is a radical saver. About six years ago, he set a goal to leave his job as a computer programmer. It's now been a year and a half since he retired, and he's only 43. Is that right, Carl? I'm actually 44. 44. Okay, still a nice time to say you've retired, Uh, perhaps for some. Uh, Is it true that a bad day at work is what got you looking into this idea of radical saving? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I had no idea that any of this was going to happen or my life would turn out like this. I had planned to work till 62 or 65, and then I had a very, very bad day at work when I was 37, and I, I hit up Google and asked Google, how do I retire early? And up came all these people who were living this uh, obscure, crazy life. Uh, one guy said he had quit work when he was 31. At, at first, I kind of thought the whole thing was a scam. This is the internet. Who is this guy? What are they going to try to sell me? And then it turns out it's just pretty much a math problem. You figure out how much money you need to spend. 
You figure out how much money you need based on that, and you do some calculations. And once you hit your numbers, uh, that's it. It's a very oversimplification of it, but it's it's just math. We'll dig into the math in just a bit, but would you call this an impulse decision? I mean, we all have bad days at work. <laughs> it was it was an impulse decision. I made this whole decision to change my life in about the course of one hour. I'm very thankful my spouse went along with it. But yeah, it, it, I have to say it was very, very stressful. I lost 10 pounds in that week due to stress. Not good. Okay, let's unpack the math just a bit. First of all, I have to assume you were making a healthy income to begin with. And is that necessary to do what you did? Uh, I did make a healthy income, especially at the end of my career. It did not start out that way. My first job paid me 36000 a year. And at the end, I was making a little over 100000 a year. Because you were into the six figures. Yes. So I don't think it's completely necessary. It will make life harder, but there's other ways to make money. We made... We flipped houses as a side hustle. So there's a million ways to make money in, in this economy. So how do you begin to put away, is it roughly 70% of your income into savings? What kinds of changes did you make in your life to make that happen? Yeah. So I've always been a pretty frugal guy, but we did make one big one. And, uh, and that one was we had a huge house. We had a house that was almost 5,000 square feet. We had a toilet for all four members of our family member in the home. So the first thing we did is we weren't very happy in the neighborhood to begin with. So we sold that and moved to a much smaller house. That was the main thing we had to do. After that, it was small tweaks like going out to eat less, uh, maybe travel hacking, using credit card points to travel, um, and walking, maybe not driving as much. Okay. So you cut your overhead by downsizing your home. You cut your fuel expenses, I'm hearing, and eating out, which gets awfully expensive if you buy a drink with a meal, especially. Sure, absolutely. And how long did it take you from that sort of decision point that you were going to do this to having enough money to retire? And what, if I may ask, was your goal amount? Okay, so my goal amount was a million dollars and no debt. And with that in mind, I already had substantial savings. I grew up with financial insecurity, so I always maxed out my retirement accounts. So at the time I made this decision, I had about $600,000 saved up, and it took me about uh, four years to accumulate the million dollars that I needed to feel comfortable with leaving my job. Okay. And the million dollars made you feel comfortable. Why? That's enough of a pot of money to earn interest on that it supports you in retirement or what? Yeah, that's it. There was a study that said once you can live off 4% of the money you have saved up in an average year, you could stop working. So we figured out we spent about $40,000 in a year. So once we had a million dollars, we would have enough to leave. What do you miss of your old lifestyle, though? Uh, like, what is the sacrifice? Yeah, I don't think it's a sacrifice. You know, a, a frugal, simple life is a happy life. I thought I would be unhappy when I moved away from the big house, but it turns out that the community and the people around us are what makes us happiest. Uh, if I had to pick one thing, it would be the camaraderie, camaraderie with my coworkers. I enjoyed them, and I enjoyed the core nature of, of my work. But I could still do that. I could still write code, and I still do that just on my own terms. So that's a key question, whether or not you're going to like life in retirement. I wonder if that kept you up at night. It did. That was the main reason I <laughs> I stayed at my work another year after I accumulated enough money. And it was because I was so afraid of being bored. And looking back now, 18 months later, after I've left my job, I realize how silly that was. I don't have 
I probably have 30 good years of, of life left and maybe 50 years of life overall, and I'm never going to be able to fit in everything I want to do. There's just not enough time. So again, you have a wife and two daughters. I do. And what has this meant for your family life? I it's, wonder also just how your wife felt about this journey you, you uh, had to go on together. Yeah, I'll tackle your second question first. I'm so thankful that I have an understanding wife who trusted me with the math, but she also saw how stressed I was. So she's like, if you figured this out, go for it. I trust you. Uh, with my daughters, it's made life uh, way better. In the summer, I can spend time with them. My older daughter knows what the Pythagorean theorem is because I can sit there and work on math with her for two hours. Uh, she runs cross country. I run with her. My younger one, we're, we're reading together. So the time I get to spend with him is so much better. And that's probably the main gift I have. If you've said this, I apologize. Is your wife uh, a breadwinner? Are you relying on that stream of income? Uh, that's an interesting thing. When I left my job, she was not working. Uh, she was volunteering to write blog posts for a company and they had a job opening. So she actually went back to work. Okay. And it was that part of the equation? No, it was not. It was something we never saw coming. It's strange. She's getting paid for what she was volunteering to do, which is very helpful. And I, I can't deny that that makes things easier because it does. That sort of supplemental income. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're investigating the world of radical savers, this movement often called FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early. And there are some who would caution those considering this path. So Nicole Sturbeck is a financial planner with Buckingham Financial in Denver, who has a much more conservative view of retiring early. Substantially early retirement is not something that in general we would advise. The individuals that would be able to make the strategy work would need to be able to commit that kind of capital early on. It is something that needs to have an individual and or families that, that are extremely committed to that lifestyle because without those items, it is something that could lead to potentially disastrous results. Potentially disastrous results. And I want to talk to you about the future. What if the market tanks in, say, 20, 30 years, your investments uh, go south and you find yourself at an age where you either don't w want to work at all or cannot work? Like, it looks fine now. What about yeah. 30 years from now? Yeah, and I would say that's not a what if. The market will tank. It's cyclical. But the 4% rule, uh, rule accounts for it. That is uh, the level of spending that's safe at like 96% of historical backtesting. And I, I always say the two keys to this are frugality and flexibility. So if everything does go down the tubes, uh, I can always tighten up the belt a little bit. And I can always be flexible. If I can live off $40,000 a year, it doesn't take much to move the needle. So I could go drive for Uber or rent a house on an Airbnb. A little bit of money could go a long way if you're frugal to begin with. You talked about finding this world online. Uh, is there much of a community online of people who do this? Do you stay connected and sort of offer each other advice? Yeah, there's a huge community. We just had a conference last week, actually, and there was about 2,000 people there. And uh, those were just the media creators. There's readers and, uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of people doing this. I think we're still mostly unknown, but it's it surprised me, the community around this movement. There's a lot of people. Any regrets? Um, no, none no. right now. 
All right. Thanks for lifting the veil on this for us. Thank you for having me, Ryan. That's Carl Jensen of Longmud. He's a radical saver and retired in his early 40s. Folk musician Gregory Allen Isakov has a lot of range, even within a single song. One moment there are majestic waves of strings and percussion. The next is spare with almost whispered vocals. They say it's taken care of it emptiness knows just where I live. Yeah, emptiness knows me. Well, today the singer-songwriter releases a new album, Evening Machines. He recorded it in his home studio, located in a barn on his three-acre farm in Boulder County. Rolling Stone and Billboard are praising the record, and he's on tour with it across the United States and Europe, with a stop this past weekend at Red Rocks for a sold-out show. We got a new record coming out on Friday. I thought this would be a good time to try out some songs on you. Just before the big show, in dressing room three at Red Rocks, I asked Gregory Allen Isakoff what it's like to perform at one of the world's most stunning music venues. It's incredible. And we play a lot. And every time we walk out there, it's a bizarre, ineffable experience. It's otherworldly feeling. Before we played here the first time, I thought, oh, we could never do that, you know, because we're not like, I don't know. Yeah, you have to be sting, (laughs) totally. And then that place can just turn into a theater. I mean, easily. It's so intimate. So it feels small when you're on stage at Red Rocks? Is that what I hear you say? It feels giant, and then it can turn into an intimate uh, situation, which is our goal always. This is my first time in the bowels of Red Oh, Rocks. yeah. Did you walk through the thingy? We walked through the hallway with all the artists' <laughs> yeah. signatures. So I saw Mariah Carey. Yeah. I saw Lauren Hill. Have you signed the hallway? I think, I think so, somewhere. It just occurs to me, we're in a dressing room across from the laundry facilities. Yeah. I keep thinking, who has sweat <laughs> on the towels? Good point. Across the way. Yeah. Any pre-show rituals? Yeah, I mean, the band and I sing some songs. They're pretty dirty. They're pretty dirty? Uh, yeah. What's an example of one? Like, we have a song about goats, and kind of it depends on what key we're starting the next song. And, uh, You've you know, got your guitar. Yeah, it's like, there's some, there's some goat and we kind of make it up as we go, <laughs> you know? Try to make, uh, try to sort of uh, uh, bury any preciousness going on. So that's usually what we do. Get it out of the way. Get it out of the way. They're going to be mad I told you about that. All right, that's fine. Yeah. Somehow the, the song about goat fornicating did not make it onto the new album. No. No. Yeah, we left that off. Uh-huh. But it might make the next one. Uh, I want to say that the album's title comes from the actual machines in your home studio, which is a converted barn on your Boulder farm. Give me a sense of what the days were like recording Evening Machines. I tend to really dive into making records. I bleed into those things. And so I can never do it. I mean, this was the quickest I ever recorded a record, which took about a year. And I've always made bedroom records, you know, setting up a bunch of mics in a room where I live. And I think that's just because I could never 
afford hourly rates at a studio because I was like, this song is being written the next over the next month while I record it. So, and of course, your studio is on your farm where you yeah, live. So right. it, in that way, it is a bedroom record. Yes. And you you said you bled into this. What does oh, that man. mean to you? Well, I re-recorded. You know, I recorded over thirty five songs for this record, and then fully tracked, changed keys, changed tempos. You know. You obsess. I just, I'm not a perfectionist by any means. There's okay. mistakes all over the record, but it just has to feel good. It has to feel right. What do you mean there are mistakes all over the record? You know, because we did some of it live, you know, maybe there's not, there's maybe some imperfect noises going on in the background, or maybe our timing's a little off here and there, but the song moves and it travels and you feel, you, you know, emotively uh, go there. Silver is a song that you co-wrote with your brother, Ilan. I understand you wrote this track on your birthday? <laughs> I, did, I did. Yeah? This particular day, I just wanted to kind of plug in some amps and just make some noise. And my brother was staying with me, and he's like, what are you doing tonight? You want to, like, do something? And I was like, I want to write this song. I had this, this melody in the, my back pocket, and, you know, we kind of just worked throughout the night and just wrote, you know, 15 verses... The song was almost 20 minutes long, and over the next few days we kind of whittled down and figured out what the song was about. It seems to me that it's about an immigrant story. It's an immigrant song, yeah. You and your brother are immigrants, yeah. right? You were born in South Africa. Yeah, my, my whole family's immigrants. I grew, my best friends growing up were all immigrants. I have so many perspectives on what it means to be an American. I see so many sides uh, to it. Just because when we moved here, everyone was just like, this is amazing. America is incredible. We moved in the height of apartheid. So it was like, wow, like... This is an incredible place, you know. It would have been in such stark contrast. Very, yeah. And for a lot of my friends... color lines there. Yeah, my friends that moved from India at the same age and other places, you know. But now, I mean, there's a lot of crazy happening. And I mean, we've been touring the whole world, and I've seen this in a lot of different countries, and it's not just here. But the amount of racism and sexism, and we're not as, as, as forward as we all maybe thought. And you feel that globally. I feel that globally, yeah. With as many songs as you had for this album, how do you begin to whittle them down? Must be like picking a favorite child. Yeah, it's like picking your favorite weird children. It was a tough process at first, and then I remember it was like the spring was starting, my season, my farming season was starting, so I had a lot of work going on. You are a farmer in addition to being a musician. Yeah, I farm like half the year. So I remember I was plowing everything, getting ready for spring planting, and I remember I had my headphones on, and I would just... I knew that the record 
wanted to start with birth. And I didn't know why. And I knew how I wanted to end it. And so I would just keep playing something. I'm like, all right, I'm not mad if that's next. And then keep playing something. I'm not mad. And then, you know, 44 minutes for vinyl. You know, that's what we're always after. 44 minutes for vinyl? Yeah. 22 each side? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah, sometimes it can go a little longer or less, but... I want to point out birth is B-E-R-T-H. Yeah. The kind of birth you'd be on in a ship or a train. Birth. It's a great word. B-E-R-T-H. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're backstage at Red Rocks, I guess in dressing room number three, with Gregory Allen Isakoff, the Boulder County folk musician. His new album is called Evening Machines, and he's taking a few minutes before a sold-out show to talk to us. We gotta talk about caves. One of the first singles from the new album. The sound is lush, as your sound often is. It's huge. And it strikes me, Gregory, as the kind of song that's going to encourage people to sing with it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think there are a lot of background vocals there are, in yeah. it. This town closes down the same time every day. Put out the smoke in your mind. Let's put on. It almost strikes me as like a a drinking beer hall song, hearkening back to a time when in union halls people would sing together. Do, do you think that's that's right? Yeah, I mean, we recorded that there was like 20 people in our barn just singing every word. And we kind of were after sort of a, a bizarre sing-along, you know? Like a... Like a I don't know, like an otherworldly, like a pretty bizarre storyline, but yeah, that kind of anthemic feeling. Too. What is the bizarre storyline? For me, that song's about that like kind of love of silence. You know, I wrote that with a great friend of mine, Ron Scott from Austin. We've written a bunch of songs together. He came up to visit me from Austin. He's an awesome, bizarre character too, uh, and. You know, he'd wake me up in the morning like, Greg, I found, I think I like birds now. I found some in the field, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm writing that down, Ron. And then I would just follow him around the farm and just write down weird what he said. And then we kind of had all these pieces of paper in front of us and we kind of wrote that song in a day. Now I think I like birds. And his friend was visiting from St. Paul. See on fire from St. Paul. We were driving her to the airport, and that St. Paul line got in there. And I go running when the night aches. Here every time she calls. You know, I find, Gregory Allen Isakoff, that you are able to write lines that are so short and so packed with emotion. And in this song, it's Where our insides on our outsides? Uh Showed our insides on our outsides. And I just thought that pierced to the core Uh of what it is to be vulnerable. Uh huh. I remember writing that line because I was outside of my house. It was was like a full moon, one of those big, bright moons where you see like the entire garden. You see the sheep like in the background. You see their eyes all kind of lit up. And I thought. There's no hide. You can't hide in this kind of light, you know, like you could in at night. It's it is piercing. Yeah, piercing. I was reading the liner notes, and you give credit to someone for God noises. Oh yeah. What the heck are God well, noises? God noises. You know, Jamie Mefford and I have been making records for a long time, 
he had a bunch of these old keyboards laying around and I was just I'm like Jamie let's make some god noises this song <laughs> I don't know why I call it that but we just kind of coined it he's like I'll do god noises on this you mix the god noises on that and Jamie didn't work on this record but we kind of kept that language <laughs> and is the idea that these are the sounds that make it feel ethereal ethereal you know it could be anything organic or analog sound that you can maybe throw back in the end of a mix or really far away or maybe throw through some distortion or delay that maybe you don't hear on the first lesson but it kind of makes you feel something there's a lot of God noises on Was I Just Another One Did you light up every lantern Your flame whipping against the wind Did you fall back to the alleys With all your secrets to defend It's sort of a song about a relationship to someone like on heroin. Um, but that's the least interesting story to me. I don't really care about any of what these songs, what the stories are for me, of any of them. I just really am after making something that people can connect to in their own lives, you know, make it theirs, make it part of their life. You know, there are websites where people will analyze what a song means. Yeah, sure. I, mean, I think one of them is song meanings. Yeah. Do you ever look at what your fans are saying, what your songs mean? I haven't. I'll, maybe I'll do that. I don't know. You don't have to do it that. It might be cool because I think that's the coolest thing about music. I mean, that's what I've been given from so many artists in my life that music is so personal to me now that I don't even feel like it's theirs oh my drunken southern star how you tried to hide in darkness slip from orbit now you're dangerously close Thanks for making time for us before a big <laughs> yeah, show. No problem. Break a leg. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah. Well, dig in our heels, salute the battlefields where our broken hearts were born. Oh, oh, oh. And the storm clouds are thirsty, I can see him bursting, watch him gather. The new album from Boulder folk musician Gregory Allen Isakoff is Evening Machines. We spoke before his big show last weekend at Red Rocks. And while we were there, I took some pictures of that tunnel that artists cover with their autographs. The Grateful Dead, Lauren Hill, One Republic. You can see those photos on the CPR Instagram account. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. My bro. Were we thirsty thorned with wild eyes? Still we are slaves to the sirens of... 
75 years ago, World War II was raging, and the United States government was racing to develop an atomic bomb. A key ingredient, uranium, was being processed at tucked-away spots all over the country, including in Grand Junction, and it was top secret then. Now the Department of Energy is spotlighting Grand Junction's role in nuclear warfare— DOE analyst Patrick Benson joins us with some of this history. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. When we think of the Manhattan Project, you know, the government program that produced the world's first Mm. nuclear weapons, I think we tend to think of places like Los Alamos in New Mexico, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Grand Junction, not so much. Elaborate on the role that Junction played in the creation of the first atomic bomb. Great question. Um, So, uh, You know, as you said, the Manhattan Project was a race to build an atomic bomb. And one of the things you need to build an atomic bomb is the raw materials. Um, And at the time, uh, during World War II, the only known sources of uranium ore were in Czechoslovakia, uh, which was under German control. Um, There was some in the Belgian Congo and some up in Canada. Um, So uh, uh, Leslie Groves, General Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, was very concerned that we needed enough uranium to be able to produce these bombs. And all this was theoretical at the time. They didn't know if any of it would work. So uh, one of the few places in the United States that was known to have ore with uranium content in it was out on the Colorado Plateau. And so Grand Junction is well-positioned next to this source that the United States needed and that was a secure enough source to embark on this project. Correct. What, uh, what happened out on the Colorado Plateau before World War II was uh, you had the discovery of uh, uranium-bearing ores, uh, particularly carnitite. Um, carnitite. carnitite? I've heard of carnitite. You've heard okay. of carnitite. I've never oh, heard, never of, heard of carnitite. Okay. Well, it was uh, it was uh, discovered, so to speak, uh, late nineteenth century, um, and it's uh, it was samples were shipped to France, and it, it's named after a French scientist named Carnot, so it's Carnotite. But there's a lot of it out on on the uh, Colorado Plateau, and it contains um, not just uranium, but it contains uh, radium. So there was a radium mining boom out there in the early 20th century. And then it also contains uh, an element called vanadium, which is uh, very good at strengthening steel. So you can imagine as World War II builds up in the 1930s into the 40s, there's a lot of vanadium mining happening out there. And what they do is they take this ore, the raw ore, and they mill it. And um, to get the vanadium, extract the vanadium out, and uh, it creates huge waste piles of what's known as tailings. And at the time, uh, before the Manhattan Project, uranium was just part of that waste pile. There wasn't much use for it. And there certainly is by the time World War II comes around. This was top secret stuff back then in the 1940s. So like, to what extent did Grand Junction residents know What had started in their backyard? During the war? Um, You know, that's that's a great question. Um, Again, this was top secret. Uh, Even the folks working in the in the uh, Grand Junction refinery and at the mills in the area that are producing this uranium didn't know the full picture of what they're doing. They just knew they were supporting the war effort and doing the job that they were told to do. 
Um, and one of the one of the perks, I guess, or one of the one of the perfect covers for the operation was all that vanadium mining right. that had been going on. It's not as if this had been uh, an an inert spot before right. that. Uh, fascinating to me is that this project was even kept secret from the man tasked with turning ore into bomb material. So Lieutenant Colonel and Civil Engineer Philip Leahy was kept in the dark until he reached Grand Junction. I guess his train trip included a misadventure mm-hmm. at Denver's Brown Palace and Union Station, mm-hmm. which could have blown the lid off the secrecy. What, what happened? Well, first, let me, let me clarify. Yeah. You, you gave him a great promotion. Uh, he started out as a second lieutenant, um, not a lieutenant colonel, um, and, and then he left the Army as a major. But... Um, Anyways, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Um, you know, he's a 30-year-old uh, civil engineer by training from upstate New York. He's, uh, he he's, comes on with the Army, and he's brought into the Manhattan Project, and he starts off in Chicago, um, where they built the world's first nuclear reactor. Oh. And uh, you won't believe where they built it, right under the football stadium at the University of Chicago. Had no idea. Um, you know, where else to build a reactor? <laughs> um, but, you know, it proved successful. Um, and then once they realized that this could work, the idea was to move it out to a location outside of the city, a, a more secure, safer location. And that's where uh, Second Lieutenant Leahy kind of enters the picture of the Manhattan Project. Uh, he was tasked with um, taking apart the initial experimental reactor and uh, refashioning it according to to the all the specs required. Tell um, us about his trip out west. Okay, so so he's busy doing this, and then he gets a call from his uh, commanding officer who says, uh, "You know, come on down to my office." Uh, so Leahy shows up, and there's a lieutenant colonel, uh, Thomas Crenshaw, sitting in the office. And Crenshaw says to Leahy. Um, Pack your bags, get all your stuff together, meet me at the uh, Union Station tomorrow morning. Um, so Leahy meets them and doesn't know, you know where they're going or anything. Boards a train. They start heading west, apparently. And then eventually they get here in Denver. It's a Denver Union Station. Denver Union Station. Every city has a Union Station, right? Um, so they get to uh, Denver and uh, there's, there's, I guess you'd call it a layover. And um, so Colonel Crenshaw suggests, let's check our bags and we'll head over to the Brown Palace that had uh, an officer's club. Um, so they went there to, to kill some time. And I guess they were enjoying themselves and lost track of time. So um, so they looked at their watches, said, we need to get back to catch that train. And they get back and Leahy uh, has his chit in hand and collects his bag uh, baggage. And um, the colonel, Crenshaw, he hands in his chit, and they can't find his bags anywhere. You know, they're looking all around, you know, sorry, sorry, uh, officer, we can't find your bags. And uh, I'm thinking that this bag might have had some key information in it. Well, it turns out it did. So, uh, you know, Colonel Crenshaw tell, tells Leahy, you know, go hold the train, stop the train. And, and the train already had taken off, and, and Crenshaw scrambling around looking for his baggage. And eventually they find it. And the first thing he does is grab his briefcase, pop it open to make sure that an envelope that says top secret on it was still in there. Was still there. Still there. Okay. So did Patrick Leahy at that point learn why he was headed to Grand Junction? 
So, no, uh, Philip <laughs> Leahy uh, didn't um, know where he was going still. Um, and at this point, they'd missed their train. So they went, spent the night at Lowry Airfield, and they uh, caught a plane to fly uh, to destination unknown. Huh. But the plane couldn't get over the Rockies, so they made a U-turn back to Lowry Field, back on the train, still doesn't know where he's going. Uh, eventually, they pull into the uh, train station in Grand Junction, and uh, Leahy um, says, oh, is this our stop? And Crenshaw says, yes, it's your stop. Uh, so grab your bags and uh, take this envelope and find a hotel room, open it up, and you'll figure out what to do. And basically, I'll see you later. And that's where they parted ways. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about... Grand Junction's role and uh, really the wider Western Slope's role in the development of a nuclear weapon during World War II and uh, as part of the Manhattan Project. So do we know whether material from Colorado's Western Slope was in the bombs dropped on Japan? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I've looked into it and it, it becomes very hard to trace, you know, a specific atom uh-huh. of uranium from all the way from, from the Colorado Plateau to, to its final use. Um, from what I can tell, it looks like the um, most of the material coming from the Colorado Plateau, particularly that flowed through the Grand Junction uh, facility, would have gone into uh, reactor fuel which uh, produced plutonium, which was used um, at the first uh, detonation of an atomic device at um, the Trinity test site down in New Mexico, as well as as one of the bombs dropped on Japan. So the Grand Junction work on the Manhattan Project ended after about three years. Many of the buildings were later removed from the site, and uh, there also had to be a pretty big environmental cleanup. Mm -hmm. But one building left behind was a log cabin that had been Leahy's office. Mm-hmm. And the Department of Energy had de- decided to turn that cabin into sort of a mini museum, I guess. Yes. Uh, so the cabin is fascinating. Uh, it was already there when, uh, you know, Second Lieutenant uh, Leahy showed up in Grand Junction. And uh, Leahy set up his uh, headquarters in downtown Grand Junction. But this uh, cabin was the office for a refinery that refined uranium Um already there. Uh, it had been used as an office for a gravel pit um, and, and some folks had lived in it. Um, and then after World War II, uh, Leahy actually returned to Grand Junction as the first Atomic Energy Commission manager of the office and he moved into the cabin as, as his office space. And you want to do what, just very briefly, with mm-hmm. that cabin? Well, what we're looking to do is um, share the story of not only of Lieutenant Leahy, but really share the stories of the sites that um, that uh, supported this nation throughout uh, World War II and the Cold War, um, and so folks can learn about what happened there, what's happening there currently. Thanks so much for sharing this fascinating history with us. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Patrick Benson is an analyst with the Department of Energy, and he joined us to talk about the DOE's efforts to preserve the history of Grand Junction's role in nuclear warfare in the U.S.
finally today, some feedback on a story we aired about a girls' boarding school in rural Tanzania. It was built by a Denver nonprofit to improve the female graduation rate of just four percent. We told the story through the eyes of an American volunteer who visited the school and met one of its top graduates. As soon as I finish uh, my university studies and become a doctor, the first thing I will do is coming back to my community and talk to the girls and other women that they should never give up on their lives and they have to study hard and they will achieve their dreams. After hearing this story, Nina Jane of Golden wrote in. She's an emergency medicine physician and humanitarian worker. She says while she appreciated learning about the school, what struck me about the story was how the story was actually told. It did remind me of、um, an age-old storytelling practice that we really need to shift away from, which is giving the focus on outsiders coming in from other countries to help or save or change populations in need. Jane says these kinds of stories can portray people as helpless or unable to create their own independent solutions. She says she believes locally led solutions are often the most effective way to make positive changes. We always welcome your insights. Find all the ways to connect with us at cpr.org/connect. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.